Now, let me tell you why this is one of my favorite weekends of the year. Because um, I can lay it on the line tonight, and I can hold nothing back, and then I'm getting out of Dodge for a month, okay? And so I, I really think about that when I plan this. So last August, I planned this message. And I knew it would be the last one that I share with you for a little bit. And so, man, I wanted something that's going to have some punch to it. And the last parable that we look at in this series, it does that. It is blunt and to the point. And if you're looking for something to kind of make you feel better today, you might want to sneak out while you got a chance, okay? Because Jesus lays it on the line here. Now, you know the drill. You know it by now, okay? Um, This series is about parables. They're stories that Jesus told. Can anybody tell me how many we have recorded in the New Testament stories of Jesus? Anybody know? 40. Awesome, okay? Um, Now, there are 14 of them, as many of you know, 14 out of the 40 that have this at the front of them, the word like. And so you know the drill, that 14 of these stories Jesus said, this is what it's like to be a Christian. This is what it's like to live under the influence of God. So if if you went to work tomorrow, you went to school, or you talked with your friends or had coffee with somebody somewhere, and they knew that you were a Jesus person, and they said, can you tell me what that's like? There are 14 stories in the Bible where Jesus said, here's what it's like. So if you live for me, you follow me, this is what your life's going to be like. And so we've taken some of those this summer, we're going to end it today, and we pulled those stories out, and they are reminders and encouragements to every one of us, including the one talking to you right now, that this is the expectation that Jesus has for me if I follow him, if I choose to follow him. Now, you also know, because you're you're an incredible audience to speak at, and I mean that. I, I really mean that. I've, I've spoken to a lot of different people, and I'd rather be here than anywhere else I've ever been. So you've heard this thing. You know that most of those parables, they are saying one thing. They're teaching one thing. And there's subpoints and different things around, but there's one driving thing that Jesus is saying, this is what it's like. It's what it's like. And when we arrive at the parable that we're going to look at, This weekend, here's the driving message. Let's look at it. There we go. Life as a Christian is like, there we go, and here it is. Being ready for the minute, every minute of your life. Being ready for the minute, every single minute of your life, you are ready for the minute minute. Now, let me describe for you what the minute is, and then we're going to dive into the actual text. Every person in this room, I don't care who you are, where you come from, what you believe, what you look like, it doesn't matter anything about you. If you're alive, if you were born on this earth, every single person will someday stand before the creator of the universe, and you got to give an account about how you lived your life. Every person will have that. That is the minute for you. Everybody has 
the minute. Here, here's how the Bible describes it in one place. The Apostle Paul was talking about it, and he said, for we will all, somebody say all. all. Okay. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Everybody. And each of us will give an account of himself to God. That is the minute for you. And everybody has it. Now, that minute for you will happen in one of two occasions in your life. Whichever one happens first is when the minute will happen to you. It could happen when you die. Or it could happen when Jesus comes back the second time. And so whichever of those happen first is your minute when you die or when he comes back. And Jesus tells us a story, an incredible story, that when you live your life as a Christian, here's what it's like. Here's, here's how you can describe it. That you are ready for the minute. Every minute of your life, you're ready. And so if your minute happen before you went to sleep tonight, are you ready for that right now? And Jesus told a story that that's what it's like if you really live for me. Now, the story he told that we're going to read here in a second, this parable is entitled, The Parable of the Ten virgins. Now, I have struggled all week how to describe that word to you, because what you all are thinking is not what he meant. And it's difficult to read it in some of the versions of our Bible and not think in terms of the absence of sexual activity. That's how we think of that word virgin. And there are places in the Bible where that word is used in that connection, but not very often. Most of the time, it just simply refers to young girls. And so because this story, you'll see in a minute, is about a wedding, and it's about the attendance, the female attendance at a wedding, it is actually, whenever I read the word virgin in this story, I want you to think that we're really talking about bridesmaids. And the story is about 10 bridesmaids at a wedding. So I want to read it for you from Matthew chapter 25. And like I did last week, I just want to read it. I don't want to put it up here. I just want you to hear the story and kind of catch maybe the mood in which Jesus told it. So if you've never heard it, it's fascinating. And if you've heard it, you'll, you'll kind of catch on pretty quick. So it goes like this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So there's our word, like. How many times does it happen? I'm struggling with some of y'all. Only a few of you got that, okay? I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I'm probably going to leave for a month because of it. So how many times that happened? Okay, there we go. I'm sorry. I'm in the mood. You're going to get it. Here we go. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish 
and five were wise. And the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there might not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Probably had to go to Walmart, only place open all night long. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, I want to give you a couple backstory things here and just hang with me on this because this is important kind of the detail stuff to understand the meaning of the, of the actual parable. Jesus is telling this on Tuesday before Friday when he dies. And if you were here last week, you know the parable last week he told on Monday. So this is Tuesday. He's telling it on Tuesday. And now on Tuesday, he's just with his guys. Monday talking to everybody, and Tuesday just with the guys that are left. And he starts talking to them about the fact that he's going to die, and they're going to bury him, and he's going to raise from the dead, and he's going to go back up into heaven, and then at some point he's going to come back and come back a second time, and he's going to make everything right then. So he's starting to talk about that on Tuesday, and his guys, his buddies, who've been with him for three years, they ask him the question that every one of us would have asked if we were there. When is that going to happen? When you coming back? And so Jesus at that point began to address, don't miss this, it's, it's just one of those Bible things that Christians ought to know. Jesus then began to give an answer of when he was going to come back. And it was one of the longest teaching moments of his whole ministry. And he said three things in relation to him coming back. Let me, let me show you what those are. When he's going to return, he said this, just pay attention to some signs out there. Some things you're going to see. Some things are going to happen. And when you start seeing those things, it's, it's getting close. So he spent a little time talking about that. And then he said this. Tell you the truth, I don't know when I'm coming. Only the Father knows that, and he ain't told me, okay? By the way, if you ever turn your television on or get on your computer and find some quack who figured out the date that he's returning, would you turn it off for me, please? Because if Jesus doesn't know, then that fool don't know, okay? So Jesus said, I really don't know the Father hadn't told me. And then he said this. 
So since we don't know, just get ready. Get ready for the minute. Now watch this. Watch this carefully. When he said get ready, here's how he said that. He said, I want you to get ready, and I'm going to tell you four stories about that. And he gave four consecutive parables right there. And the one that we just read is the second of the four. And all the stories, all the four parables at that point say the same thing. Well, we don't know when he's going to be ready. We don't know when he's going to be here. So just be ready. So what's it like to be under the umbrella of God's influence in our life? What is it like to be a Christian? Watch this. Here's what it's like. You are ready for the minute, every minute of your life. And so we go to this story, and we start reading this second story of the four, and he starts talking about what it means to get ready. And in this particular wedding story, he described what it means to be ready. And he uses a wedding. And we're familiar with that. I, I said that last week, that Jesus often, when he taught, he used weddings to describe it. And so in this wedding, it sounds like a crazy story because we think of American weddings. But in the first century, Jewish culture, in, in that area of Asia Minor, that Palestinian culture, their weddings weren't even close to our weddings. Their weddings were held at the home of the groom. That's where weddings happen. Not at a wedding, not at a park. They were held at the home of the groom. And when the wedding time came, the groom would go to the bride's house, who she's waiting at her house with her bridesmaids, and he goes to get his bride with her attendants, and they make a procession back to his home, and the wedding takes place there. That's a first century Jewish wedding. But here's the thing that was totally different in their weddings and our weddings, is there was no set time that the groom would show up. Now, I, I believe there was some kind of a range. There had to be a range, okay? But they didn't have a time where the groom said, okay, now it's time. The wedding started when the groom said it would start. Now, let that rub you a little bit, okay? I got married at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on June 12, 1982. If I would have shown up at 8 o'clock, my guess is that the results would not have been favorable, okay? I'm just guessing on that one. And so in that culture, the groom just kind of shows up out of the blue, and in this story, he shows up at midnight. <laughs> Dude, what have you been doing all day? And he shows up at midnight. And so they all get ready. The wedding's going to happen. And all the attendants jump up, and they've got those torches, okay? We know those torches. They're going to light the way so we can get there. And you put a little oil on them, and they, 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 start, they start coming alive. You can see, and there are five of them that didn't have any oil. And the lamps went out quickly, and Jesus used that story, listen carefully, to say this. When I come back... For the minute, your minute, 
and you will have to give an account to the Father. Every person in the room will have to do that at that minute, unless your minute has happened when you die. And so when that minute comes and you appear before the creator of the universe, listen, don't miss this, you better have some oil. And if you ain't got no oil, you ain't going to the wedding. Now, that's the story. And we can close our Bibles and we can go home and we can get in our car and any thinking person in here is going to ask themselves, what kind of oil do I need to get? <laughs> is it 10W40? Is it, you know, something I cook with? What is it? And here's the bad news. As a Bible teacher, here's what I, I share with you. Jesus never identified the oil. He never told us what he meant. He said, now there's signs, you know, watch for the signs, okay? That's good. That means we're getting close. And I don't know when it is. The Father knows. He'll let me know. So because we don't know when it is, man, just be ready. Be ready. Every minute of your life, be ready for the minute. Well, how do I be ready? Just make sure you got some oil. Well, dude, what's oil? And he never told us. Now, I find it interesting. I've... I did everything I know this week to research this. I read everything I could read. I looked at every original text and tried to figure stuff out. And the bottom line is nobody knows what the oil is. Now, there are some kind of pinheaded scholars out there who think they figured it out. Um, there's some who say, well, it's the Holy Spirit, and others who say, no, it's the Word of God. And even at their best, they're just, they're just guessing at it. We don't know what the oil is. And so um, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, let's, let's play with that a little bit. You go along with me. It seems to me that in a lot of different events in our life that we all experience, there are certain things that you got to get in place. You got to do them. You got to make sure they're done in order to be ready. There, there's things you got to take care of. And so if you're having a test in school and you want to show up and you want to be at school and say, man, I'm going to have a test day. I'm, I'm ready. Well, how do you know you're ready? Well, you read the material. You memorized the material. You thought through the material. You studied the material. You are ready. What's that mean? Your oil level is good. Okay. Let's say you got a deadline at work. Your boss came to you and said, hey, I want you to take your ex. I need done at this point. And so you want to get at that point where the boss says, okay, now it's time. Is it ready? You want to say, man, I'm ready. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to do everything that was asked of you. The product's going to be assembled. The report's going to be written. The T's going to be crossed. The I's going to be dotted. You're going to look at the boss and say, man, I am ready. I got it done. Ladies, you're getting ready for a fancy dinner date with your husband. So you'll be ready. Your hair's all did up. You know, you got the makeup applied, you, you got the nails painted, you got all the clothes on in position, the shoes match the purse, you've taken seven selfies, you've blown them all up to look at every angle, and then he comes in, and you're ready. The oil tank is full. By the way, no man has ever walked in and his wife was ready, but that's just another sermon for another day. 
So I wonder if Jesus is saying, I wonder if he's saying this, that there are things you got to have taken care of. Because those are indicative of your oil tank being full. You've got to have these ready. And so if every other thing in life kind of has that symbolism of readiness, I wonder if this is it. That Jesus says, that's got to be in place. That's got to be taken care of. That's got to be dealt with. And I wish he would have told us what those were, and he just didn't. Now, as I've thought through that, because it's my last week here, I thought, well, why don't I just make them up and tell them to you? And so I started thinking through that. I started asking myself with the little understanding of the Bible that I have, because I don't think we ever get a full understanding of the Word of God, with the little that I have of things that I know in the Bible, I know there are certain things that are really important, and they are taught in multiple places about having taken care of when you meet the Father. And so I want to give a suggestion of what the oil could be. I, I want to talk about some things that ought to be taken care of. And the majority of my sermon has just been to kind of introduce this, this story. So I'm just going to kind of rapid fire these things. And I want you to think of them almost like corners, uh, cornerstones of a home. These are the foundations of being ready. And so from my perspective, let me share some things that I think are indicative of oil. Here's one. A visible love for Jesus. See, here's, here's what I, I think is going to happen. From, and if we were in a Bible study, we'd open up all the scriptures that tend to. Here, here's what I think it's going to happen. When the minute comes, okay, when the minute happens, either I've died or he's back and I'm before the Father, I think at that moment we are struck with the reality that the only chance I have to get into the banquet hall is the cleansing blood of Jesus. I think we'll, wreck, we'll, we'll realize that in a way that we never have before. Because right now we think, if I got enough good stuff going on in my life, he's going to let me in. We, we think that. And we think, well, if I don't do any of the really bad stuff, then I don't have to be, you know, go through some kind of crazy punishment. And I think that at that moment, when the minute happens, we will be struck with the reality that the blood of Jesus that washes the filth is the only hope I have. It's all I've got to hang my hat on. And so what I want to ask is, has that happened to you yet at all? And I'm, I'm not talking, I, I really, please hear me, I'm not, I'm not talking about coming to a point in your life where you recognize that, yes, a guy named Jesus lived. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not even talking about getting to the point in your life where you say, man, I even believe it. I believe that he lived. I really do believe that. I think he died. They, 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 they buried him. He came alive. I believe that. I'm not even talking about that. Because it's so easy for people today 
who, who get to the point where they recognize the existence of Jesus and maybe even believe that it all happened, that they think, okay, I'm good to go. I'm not talking about any. Listen, the devil's got all that going on. Here's what I'm talking about. Where when you hear what Jesus did for you on the cross, listen, and it wrecks you. It absolutely wrecks you. So when the minute comes, I think that he will look for people who have been wrecked. And when you are wrecked over the grace of Jesus, what happens? You love him in a way that everybody else knows. I think maybe that's what John meant when John wrote that little verse in one of his letters. He said, now here's why we love God. We love God because he first loved us. And we start realizing what really happened on the cross was for me, and it wrecks me. So, so if you've ever been wrecked and you're still a little bit wrecked, here's what I think that means. I think that means you got some oil happening with you. But if you're just kind of in belief stage and, yeah, I know about it, yeah, I've done the Jesus thing, yeah, uh, and it's not wrecked you, I, I don't know that the tank is showing much oil there. So let me move on to something else I want to show you. I, I think there will be the looking of Jesus to find out if there is a disgusting hate towards sin. I, I wonder if he'll say, are you there at that point? One of the things I get joked on a lot at my own uh, fault is um, my distaste of meatloaf. I've talked about that a number of times and people joke with me about it and I just don't like meatloaf and I never have liked meatloaf. And every time I talk about that, there's always some ladies in the church that come up after, oh, you never tasted mild meatloaf, mild meatloaf. Ladies, listen. No, I don't want to taste your meat. I loaf, I don't, I, I don't want that, okay? Um, but I just haven't ever liked it. It just hasn't a good taste to it to me. So um, it's kind of the old story I used to uh, talk about when we had first got married. We hadn't been married, I don't know, a couple weeks. And I came home and my beautiful bride had fixed this you know, beautiful dinner. She was so proud of it. It's meatloaf. And, and I thought, man, you know, I never told her, so I'm going to kind of gut through this. And I take a bite, and she said, how is it? She was so proud. And I said, it's the worst thing I ever had in my mouth. That's what I said. <laughs> worst thing I ever had in my mouth. Um, rookie mistake. I didn't have the husband thing. You know, new husbands, they're clueless, okay? Totally clueless. And some of y'all looking at your 50-year hut, when you going to get, you know what I'm saying. So I just have never liked meatloaf, okay? It's just never been my thing. And I have, um, I've noticed <laughs> lately um, that I tasted a piece of meatloaf a while back that I found to be edible. And I don't know if Susan had put something in it. I don't know if it was cooked some way, but it wasn't awful. And so I ate it. And I hate to admit this, but I have started to develop a little bit of taste for it. And if you can give me a gallon of dark gravy, 
we could make this happen, okay? Um, we were on a road trip recently, and it was at night. We hadn't eaten yet because it drove as far as we could. And I said, man, we got to eat something. We got off the exit and uh, out in Illinois. And the only place open was Cracker Barrel. That was it. So we went in there to eat Cracker Barrel. And by the way, if you eat dinner late at night at Cracker Barrel, you don't have to ask for the senior discount because everyone in there gets it. it it's, it's automatic at that point. So my, my point is we were in our 60s and we were the youth group there. So anyway, <laughs> um, our waitress said, what do you want? And I ordered meatloaf. And Susan Bob fell off. What do you, what did you order? And I ordered meatloaf. Has this ever happened to you with sin? What used to bother you doesn't bother you anymore. Things that you would have never accepted. You're starting to have a bit of an open mind about it now. You, you might even like something that used to turn your stomach. And I would suggest that if that ever gets there relative to sin, that that is a dangerous position to be in. You ever seen this verse? Hate what is evil. When your mama and your grandma said, we don't hate anything, you can look at them and say, oh, ma'am, you're wrong. We hate that which is evil. And you know why God hates it? Because his son had to die for it. So, when the minute comes, my perspective is that the oil may very well be my distaste for sin. So, is that your story, or have you grown accustomed to it? Let me show you another one. If you're not beat up yet enough, let me throw another one at you. A life of kingdom service. Now, this is kind of a technical thing. Let me mention it, and I'll move on. I said that he never defined the oil, and that's pretty true, but I think he might have hinted at it. Remember, this is the second of the four parables, okay? And so the second parable ends, dude, you got to have some oil when the minute comes. We don't know what's going to happen, so what happens, make sure you got some oil. What's oil? I'm not going to tell you what oil is. And then he tells another parable. Right on the heels of it, he goes in, let me tell you another story. And you go to the next story, and we're not going to open it up and read it, but it is about... Um, it's about our, our resources. It's about our time. It's called talents. And everybody has some talents in your life. It's your time. It's your abilities. It's your relationships and all those kinds of stuff. And Jesus tells a story, the third story of the four, about what you do with your talents. Do you use them in service for 
the creator of the world. And what he's talking about is do you live your life, watch this, wake up and your purpose of life is to live on mission that I need to advance the cause of God in this world. If I gotta use my schedule, my time to do it, if I gotta use my abilities, my skill sets to do it, if I gotta use my money to do it, if I gotta use my voice to do it, are you advancing the cause of God in an evil world? And that's the third parable. So because it's the third parable, I wonder, I wonder if what Jesus is saying is that's the oil. That if your minute happened right now and you are standing before the creator of the world and he asked you this, what did you do, let's just sum it up, what did you do in the month of July to further the cause of a holy God in an evil world? Who would have an answer to that? See, that's why we talk about volunteerism at our church all the time. We don't talk about volunteerism because we gotta have somebody to watch the stinking kids back there, and we gotta have people doing this and that. We don't do that because we're a restaurant and gotta fill all our positions. We do that because we're passionate about advancing the cause of God in a world that's falling apart. Am I right? Am I right? And that's what we're talking about. And so I wonder... If you're living a life of service, then, then that's an oil tank that's full. And if you're saying, dude, I'm just trying to live it and make it in my own life. I got my own problems. I'm trying to keep, you know, I'm trying to do my own thing. I got time for nothing else. Then let me tell you this. Your oil tank is dry. Let me give you one more. We're going to get out of here. And that is a lasting devotion to the faith family. Now, I'll be careful with this because this is a mantra of mine. And if I get rolling, um, we're here for the evening news. I'll be. You guys are all take off. Um, when, when Jesus wrecks you, And I'm not, I'm not saying, okay, I, I know about him, and yeah, I believe. I'm not going to talk about that. Devil does that. I'm talking when, when I remember what he did on the cross, and it wrecks me. And I fall in love with him. Watch this. At the very same time, I fall in love with his family. can't love the father and not like his kids. And so I, I want you to hear this. There are no examples anywhere in the Bible, none, of somebody who had Jesus in their life but was disconnected to the church, the family. I have any examples of that. There are no examples of that in the Bible at all. And somewhere along the line, we've started to lose that in America. And we've blamed COVID enough. I'm, is anybody worn out with taking our fallacies and our failures and disrupting the blame on COVID? Is anybody worn out with that? Okay? 
And so, so we've kind of blamed all that, but we have started to lose sight of the aspect of being in love with the family. I, I shared with our staff this morning that there are agencies that are starting to look at that uh, across the board with great detail now. And here's one of the things that we've learned recently. In the last 30 years in America, in the last 30 years in America, there are 40 million people who used to go to church that don't go to church anymore. 40 million. And, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm concerned because there are places in Scripture that talk about the vast importance when you are wrecked by the Savior and your love for him is bursting out so that everybody sees, it is natural that you love the family at the same time. And if you don't love the family, then it may be indicative of the fact that you've never been wrecked. Does anybody get that? Is anybody with me on that yet? Now, now watch what happens when we are given a picture of the very first people who were ever wrecked by the saving grace of Jesus. They're described for us in the Bible. And let me, let me show you something it says about them in Acts chapter 2. It says, this they, talking about those people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now keep up here looking. The word devoted, that is a compound word. It's two words come together to make a word. And it is the word strong and time. Strong time. They were strong time. Here's what it meant. They were connected in a way that they would be connected for a long, 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 long time. They were devoted to something like that. They were sticking with something. What were they sticking to? He gives us four different things, and one of them was the fellowship, the family, the church. See, if we were at a Bible study, I would break into some text where I believe the impetus is that when Jesus returns, and to be as blunt as I can be blunt about it, that when he returns, he will look for people who are in the church. And so when the minute happens for you, and my online community, if I can somehow get through and, and you hear this, that when the minute happens for you, he will long for you to be connected to the family. Because being in the church builds the oil level. No church, no oil. Now, I might be completely wrong. And um, Jesus might be shaking his head right now saying, Dude, I'm going to make your minute happen tonight so I can tell you how wrong you were. Um, but I don't think I was far off. Because there's things you got to settle before the minute comes. And living as a Christian is having it settled every minute of your life. The whole time this week when I've worked on this message, 
Um, I started reading and writing some things down on Monday, and uh, Tuesday I did a little work on it, and yesterday I just kind of dove the whole day into it. And all three days, uh, probably going back Sunday too, Sunday night, starting to play with it a little bit, man, I just could not close my eyes and not see the luggage case. And I've talked about the luggage case in some settings before. And I, I can't get the luggage case out of my eyes. You, you got anything that you've ever seen, and it might be a, a great thing of celebration, and it might be a horrible thing of just great tragedy. You got anything when you close your eyes, you immediately go there? Anybody? And for me, a lot of times, and particularly this week, whenever I did that, it was the luggage case. Um, I've told you all I don't sleep real well normally, and this week when I've tried to sleep, I just kept seeing the luggage case. It was blue. Our family, um, my sweet sis is here. Um, our family didn't plan on mom dying before dad. That wasn't a plan, was it? Because um, she was dad's caregiver when he was diagnosed with dementia. And so, mom, you can, you can take care of him. And we didn't plan for her to die first. And so when she died, it was, we were faced. Uh, we'll never forget that, will we? We were faced with the immediate decision while we're putting funeral plans together. The, what are we going to do with him? And so the plan was to bring him to a facility here in the Louisville area where um, my brother and my sister and I, we all had kind of responsibilities we took care of. And we'd, we'd bring him here and my wife and I would watch out and care for him as best we could. But you got to have time to set that up. I mean, I remember walking out of the cemetery with my mother and going to the dinner and meeting with my brother and sister. What are we going to do with him right now? What are we going to do? And so our decision was to come here, and, but we needed some time. And so because he was a veteran, we were able to place him into a, a veteran's hospital facility for dementia care, memory care. And uh, I think dad was probably about 50, 60% mentally there at that point. And so he kind of went along with the plan. He kind of knew a little bit what was going on. But man, he hated that place. He hated it because he was locked in. And uh, it tore us up to leave him there. Some of y'all been there. And I remember when I left, I said, Dad, hang in there, man. Give me two weeks. I'll be back. I'll be back. Two weeks. Give me two weeks. I'll be back. I'm going to get you. Give me two weeks, Dad. And so the two weeks came, and everything was all set up. And, and we drove to Illinois, and I went to the facility, and I, I went back to the memory care area, and I did the little buzz the button thing, and they opened it up, and I went in the door. And as soon as I went in the door, I looked down, and there was his bag of all his stuff. It was right there in his bag. Little blue bag. Little blue luggage bag. And then I saw him over in the commons area and he said, David! And he started scooting over. He was so happy to see me. And I said, Dad, you got your bag? 
ready, man. I was going to come and help you put your bag together. And one of his caregivers was there, and she, she came up, and she whispered into my ear. She said, every morning since the first day you guys dropped him off, when he got out of bed in the mornings, he'd pack that bag, and he'd bring it right down here by the front door, and he'd put it on the ground just in case today was the day. And I want to be ready like that. I want my bag packed when the minute it happens. And the only way to do that is make sure you've got some oil. Father, I long to see you. And help me to build a heart and a determination that when you come or when you call, you won't have to wrestle with the decision of letting me in the wedding. Amen.